Greetings, everybody out there in Dreamland. Namaste and salam. Iron sharpens iron, and a friend sharpens a friend. Thank you all very much for tuning into the broadcast of the Beyond Top Secret Texan. I am the Beyond Top Secret Texan. I am broadcasting to you from the third coast, the coast of the most built coast of Texas. It is my pride and privilege to be doing so. Thank you, listeners, new and old. Thank you if this is your first episode. Thank you if this is your 400th episode. Feel free to leave a comment and rate. You can go ahead and give me the five stars, or you could listen to a little bit of this one, hopefully all of it, and peruse the archives of hundreds of free episodes covering many different subjects, and I mean many. The diversity of subject matter, topics of focus and concentrations and explorations, I mean, it's just a plethora that's hard to even define. I should go and make playlists specific to certain subjects because it would be easier to search up. Because over 400 episodes are publicly available for free download, but searching keywords can help bring up things like the Anunnaki, Tartaria, the SSP, Solar Warden, etc. That will help you refine your search. True crime, occult, uh, conspiracies, cryptozoology, etc. All of that's there from the paranormal to the political, from the esoteric to the exoteric, from UFOs to the occult. The Beyond Top Secret Texan is an independent citizen journalist as well as a public informant, a survivor providing his own eyewitness testimony, as well as relating the world's events around us all. In the great fabric we call this simulacra of uh, reality, this realm. And making sense of it the best I can. And delivering it the best I can to you, the listeners. The best audience out there in Dreamland. Thank you for liking, sharing, and subscribing. Sharing is the big part where if you post this episode uh, onto your social media. If you post this to your social media on websites forums I know are dead, but threads, discord, etc. Facebook groups, I'm barred from Facebook, I can't even create an account on there. Uh, Posting clips of this video across TikTok or the airwaves, whatever is new, whatever's trending, whatever you use, wherever you have online digital friends and wherever you guys uh, communicate. I know podcasting is hard for advertisement and everything like that it's hard to actually get the word generated but we are doing amazing we are getting across several uh hemispheres i mean that's several hemispheres um just many different countries different over all the continents uh from australia to alaska and everything the numbers are just rising and rising and rising so i know you guys are sharing i know you guys are getting the word out i know we're growing and everything i'm just reminding y'all that we are still shadow banded, no matter how uh, successful we're becoming and no matter how popular we're becoming, we're still shadow banned. Shadow banned to the extreme, with extreme prejudice by the powers to be and the mainstream internet hype machine. You know, that won't touch us with a 30 foot pole. So, we. Here at the Beyond Top Secret Texan. And by that I mean I. It's a solo project. 
I really do need you guys. This is, this is a symbiotic relationship. The more you share, the more you like, the more you subscribe, the more you rate, the more you comment, just the better it is for me. Remember, there is no such thing as bad press or publicate or, or so, uh, you know, whatever, PR. No such thing as bad press. You know, you need to help get a spotlight on this, get the word out, get this in front of people's eyes, whether you're hating it or not. I fully encourage you. Post it, throw it to the wolves, see what happens. Let them come. Let them try to uh, scandalize and debate. I already know the deep state COINTELPRO spies of the military-industrial complex and all their evil minions have already infiltrated and already joined communities, tried to start grass fires, tried to start mutinies, tried to ruin our image, tried to blackmail us, uh, hacking our electronic devices, getting into our personal lives all the old tricks that they have always done and will always do to those that really are in danger to their um, there really are a danger to their uh, system, their bullshit system of lies this mockery and charade we call society and it's different faces it's different manifestations every time we do an episode we look into the hidden the subliminal, the behind the scenes we see the truth behind their symbolism. And we see the drama of the humanity that is hidden behind the headlines. We pride ourselves on discernment at Beyond Top Secret Texan program. We pride ourselves on being able to bring you the most unique and accurate explorations on these very strange phenomena. And we mostly highlight and focus as of now and into the future on Texas stories. Texas stories that would be very obscure to those outside the state and even those inside the state. It's 25 million people. It's got thousands of cities. It's got hundreds of counties. You know, I know we're not all uh, hearing everything that's happening in every single community. Even though it's important, even though it's, 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 you know, it's his own country, basically, its own nation. And I think just focusing on that, and if, say, all my audience was just from Texas, I would still be extremely satisfied with that. But I know it's international, so I know people in Ireland, for example, people in Australia, aren't hearing these stories. You might have a fascination with Texas, you might know Texas. I know everyone does. It's internationally famous. The reputation of Texas is sterling. Um... You know, in the EU, in South America, in Asia, etc. You can go to China right now and say, you're, I would say, hey, I'm from Texas. And they will go, oh, Texas, you know, cowboy hats, guns, you know, Houston Rockets. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, they, Houston Astros, you know, Dallas Cowboys. You know, go Longhorns. It's like, it's it really is like that. It's, it's a world that is you know it's it's at like me it's it may be almost too concentrated on this one aspect of itself which is the state of being texan and texas but at the same time that's all we really need so it's a magical identity all into its own 
But there's a dark side to it all. A lot of fucking crime. A lot of grisly murders. A lot of barbarous acts that are done frequently with almost impossibly high occurrences or frequency rates in some of the smallest and most innocent appearing communities in Texas or in the world or in America specifically and they can be home to monsters and I mean that monsters It should never ever be underestimated in terms of severity and absolute cold-bloodedness. And it would shock even the most hardened detectives from the largest cities. So we're going to get into it. We're going to dive on in. And I this is going to be a, a continuing running series of uh, videos, of articles, of, I'm sorry, podcasts, episodes, audio episodes, uh, featuring small towns in Texas and their shocking crime and criminal histories. Um, this one is very close to where I broadcast from. I broadcast from Corpus Christi, Texas. This is Portland. This is a suburb of Corpus Christi, Texas, so we're starting close to home. Portland is a city in the Oasis in San Patricio counties in the U.S. state of Texas. Its population was 20,383 as of the 2020 United States Census. Portland is a suburb of Corpus Christi located on the north shore of the Oasis and Corpus Christi bays. It is a sleepy community by most standards. Formerly of very high real estate value. Considered a luxury location by many. It has now become an area where mostly the engineers and professionals who work at the refineries or the ports are around Texas and various small businesses, etc. With a successful median income of $52,000 is a middle class higher working class era neighborhood. Small, even by Texas standards. It has only one movie theater. One real busy street. Nothing really of notice or interest to do. Beyond to go to the bigger city. And ironically, on the Wikipedia, the crime, according to a 2010 United States survey, was lower than half that of Texas. It's also home to some nationally known and reported on grisly fucking murders oh and oddly enough 
small trivia fact. It is equidistant from Portland, Maine and Portland, Oregon. The more famous of the Portlands, but by no standard, the only. So in Portland, Maine, and Portland, Oregon, if you were to draw true direct lines into the center of the United States, uh, meeting them on the Gulf Coast, you would hit Portland, Texas. And apparently that was completely coincidental. But you could say, maybe it isn't as unimportant as it does seem on the face of it. We're going to be speaking about three different uh, murder cases that happen in Portland. The first is probably the most recent. Well, it's definitely the most recent. I shouldn't have said probably. It's definitely the most recent. And thus there's less to go by in terms of evidence surrounding research done, made available, etc. As well as probably the more obscure. Once again, not probably. The most obscure case in the three. I'm not going to beat myself up with that. We all have our weird speaking habits every day. You know, the things I've been saying probably. Probably, like a lot. No, this is definitely the more obscure of the three. It's a double homicide murder. Suicide that took place in 2021 during the height of the lockdown. According to police, around 1.30 a.m., a man called 911 and told officers he was distraught and to go to Escondido Street before hanging up. When the local beat police arrived, they found the front door open and found a family of three. Five-year-old little Eli Garza, 36-year-old Jennifer Phillips, and 52-year-old Raul Garza, all dead in the child's bedroom from gunshot wounds. It's difficult for the citizens of this community. It's difficult on the officers of this department. It's difficult with everybody that was involved at the scene, said Portland Police Department Chief Mark Corroy. KRS 6 News obtained the almost 20-second audio clip of the police call to Portland PD. Most of it was inaudible. When a dispatcher asked what's going on, Garza replied, Just come now. After an investigation, police confirmed that Garza shot his own child and wife and then took his own life shortly after hanging up with Portland PD. The incident was premeditated, according to detectives 
There were some measures taken by the suspect, Mr. Garza, earlier in the evening in preparation of this double homicide, said Chief Corey. Police have confirmed and said that Garza did not have any prior history of violence, nor were there any incidences of domestic abuse to the house and residents. They said incidents like this are rare, with the last being five full years ago. Portland PD says the investigation is ongoing. And all conclusions are subject to change uh, given further future evidence. That one's just a, a appetizer. To demonstrate it's how fucking weird. A small town with 20,000 people can get over one random night on random summer night on August 14th, 2021. There was no more evidence found in this case, by the way. Just the photos released of a man in his 50s, working class man. Who one day either psychologically snapped, things spiraled out of control and turned to violence, or through some malignant mental illness or spiritual poison, he was possessed and did this. There is no evidence to suggest that there was a foul play at the scene or uh, anything else of that matter. But it's odd that the police were so quick in declaring that this was premeditated and that there was nothing suspicious to this. Even if it did seem clear within Within the first night, they had declared that it was a murder-suicide. Rather than any forensic work being allowed to occur, or any kind of uh, coroner, or, or anything, doing any kind of autopsy or forensic evidence for it. Portland Police Department officially even saying the investigation was ongoing when their police chief made those statements. And as you'll hear a little bit later on, just because they're police in Portland doesn't mean that they're 100% on the level and not subject to making very obvious mistakes in their thinking and judgment process. As well as the benefit and curse of being in a small town is literally everybody knows everybody even a town of 20,000. And you'll see how weird this connection of six degrees of separation actually gets when victims of cases know 
the spouses and family members of the police and detectives working cases personally the second case would be a more infamous case but one with slightly less public attention. Oh, hold on. Before we go into that... Before we go into that... Hold on. This is all live, remind you. This is all live. Before we go into that, I have this video I wanted to show. I have all these tabs open on my, on my browser. So. Distraught man murdered wife and five-year-old son, made cryptic call to 911, and then died by suicide, say the police. There are still unanswered questions about why a man murdered his wife and young son, made a cryptic 911 call, and then died by suicide, according to police in Portland, Texas. Raul Garza, 52, allegedly shot and killed wife Jennifer Phillips, 36, and their son Eli Garza, age 5. He called 911 on Saturday at about 1.30 a.m., but he did not reveal much, cops said, according to KIII-TV. Received a receiving a 911 call from a distraught male who was advising that he needed law enforcement assistance at a scene of a crime, Portland Police Chief Mark Corroy told reporters. Dispatch attempted to get more information from him, police said. All he said was just come now, Raul Garza said in 911 audio obtained by KRS-TV. Then he hung up. Officers described finding a tragic, horrifying scene at the home of Northeast Portland. The front door was open, according to official version of events. Cops found three people dead inside the child's bedroom. Jennifer Phillips, Eli Garza, and the perpetrator, Raul Garza. Garza shot both Phillips and Eli twice, Corey said. The chief described the mother as struck multiple times in the head. We had four officers on the scene, and it was rough on them, Corey said. It was a difficult situation when you walk in on a welfare check and then you discover three deceased bodies, especially ones a child. Under the police timeline, the father killed his family, made the 911 call, and then died by self-inflicted gunshot wound. It's apparent in the investigation that once the suspect, Mr. Garza, made the call to the police department, he then committed suicide in the bedroom where his wife and child had already been killed, Corey said. The motive behind these killings remains publicly unknown, but Raul Garza allegedly planned this. He contacted family members Friday evening, said Corey, who did not elaborate much. The chief described the father's preliminary actions in general terms. There were some measures taken by the suspect, Mr. Garza, early in the evening in preparation of this double homicide. Corey told reporters, according to KRS-TV. Raul Garza did not have a history of violence before the murder-suicide cop said. The investigation is ongoing. Neighbors describe Jennifer Phillips in the words of KRS-TV, the heart of the community, and Eli as a playful young soul. 
just absolutely fucking brutal. And by all temps, uh, by all um, descriptions of it, that first case of the of the murder suicide in Portland, the brutality of it, as well as the senseless violence of it, is shocking even to the police officers themselves. And I would have to agree, but I think that a further investigation and any real police detective at a scene like that would have to start suspecting maybe outside influence as well as the potential of there being potentially unknown suspects at that scene at that time who could have forced him to make the call who could have been say having an affair with that woman then kill the family or just was paid to kill the man and made it look like a murder-suicide because there's a lot of organized crime and hitmen associated with Portland as well as the cartel connection up and down the area. Industrial um, whistleblowers, OSHA complaints, uh, complainants and stuff like that um, being silenced by corporations uh, there's a number of things that could possibly be happening in South Texas, especially in such an industrial area as South Texas, especially police informant uh, type activity, drug trade, uh, organized crime at various levels, say of money laundering, etc. Who knows? Who knows why a 52-year-old father of a 5-year-old child kills his 36-year-old wife and that child before calling the cops on himself, then killing himself without any explanation or leaving any clear note or confession of such besides initially an open front door and the cops who responded for a welfare check discovering three corpses and then declaring the scene closed or case closed. This second case this second case is a little bit more fucked up. It's actually a lot more fucked up. But how can you compare levels of fucked up, right? When it comes to all this. It's fucked. This level is way more fucked. A uh, little bit more nationally publicized. Or I'd say a lot more nationally publicized. But a little bit less than our next case. But deserving of repeating. As this shit is fucking gross and weird and just fucked up all at once and from a town of 20,000 people that's considered a suburb of Corpus Christi uh, with mo- one movie theater you know super nice beaches and a medium income of $55,000 Texas teen sentenced to life for killing his mom with a hammer and then defiling her corpse Kevin Jazrael Davis A South Texas teenager has been sentenced to life in prison for murdering his mother and then defiling her body. A Nueces County jury took less than an hour on Wednesday in deciding the life sentence for 18-year-old Kevin Jazrell Davis, who pleaded guilty earlier in the week to killing Kimberly Hill. Prosecutors say Davis in March struck his mother about 20 times with a hammer. He then sexually assaulted her corpse. 
KZTV reports when police asked if it was his first time, Davis said, I guess I lost my virginity to a dead corpse. Davis called 911 the next day to say he had killed someone. Jurors this week were shown a video of Davis's interview with detectives in which he acknowledged having violent fantasies toward women. The Corpus Christi Caller Times reported that the teen told investigators he's sane and was aware of his actions earlier in March. This article, written by My San Antonio, my essay, is a little bit more detailed. Which is odd, given that the, the details of the case themselves are like intentionally sparse. Kept as minimal as possible. And I think to protect either from claims of sexual abuse, maybe from his own mother, or just from the sheer level of psychopathy that this person had. And just the absolute taboo of both matricide and incestual necrophilia. This written by My San Antonio. Texas man gets life sentence for killing mother with hammer, defiling her corpse. An 18-year-old from Nueces County was sentenced to life in prison Wednesday for killing his mother with a hammer and sexually assaulting her corpse. Kevin Jazrael Davis pleaded guilty Monday to killing his mother, Kimberly Hill, on March 26th, the Corpus Christi Caller Times reported. A jury took less than an hour to give him life in prison. Davis told police he struck his mother about 20 times with a hammer, and raped her after she died, according to the Caller Times. Davis described having violent and sexual fantasies involving women, including his mother and sister, in a police video screened for jurors. Davis turned himself into police on the day after the murder, which took place at the 4,300 block of Castoris Road, according to KIII-TV. Davis told detectives he intended to leave town on his bicycle, but instead left the bike near train tracks. He walked to a house and asked a couple there to call 911 because he had murdered someone. Quote, I'm not mentally disturbed. I'm sane. I know what I did, Davis said in the video. After hitting Hill's head with a hammer... Davis told detectives he put his hand inside her to feel her brain and make sure she was dead. He then had sexual intercourse with his dead mother's corpse, according to KZTV. When police asked if it was his first time, Davis said, I guess I lost my virginity to a dead corpse. You can feel the tip of the iceberg that that case really sits on. And it was reported nationally. There are reports, headlines of it from the New York Post. Let me just look it up right here so I can actually get the list. Let's see. Texas. Texas. 
just searching it up right now using vanilla uh, OS from the mirror UK death wish teenager killed his own mother and had sex with her corpse uh, from Fox News Dallas teen confesses to killing mother and defiling her body from ABC 7 Los Angeles Texas teen sentenced to life for killing his mother with a hammer From Daily Mail, Kevin Davis, who killed mother before sexually abusing corpse. New York Daily News, see it now. Sicko Texas teen gets life in prison after killing mother. And it's just, I mean, it's not... It's, it's, it's not a small list. It goes on and on and on. This was... Huge news in 2014. Try to pull the Los Angeles Times article. Oh, that was the Los Angeles Times article we had read earlier. Never mind. From the mirror. Let's see what the mirror has to say about it. There were words that no mother ever wants to hear from her son. Teenager Kevin Davis confessed to his mom that he was so bored of his life he wanted to die. But a day later, it was her dead body police found in very disturbing circumstances. Kevin Davis, 17, lived with mom Kimberly Hill, 50, in Corpus Christi, Texas. And it's Portland. Uh, Kimberly was a carer in a hospice devoted to looking after others in their final days. So when her son came to her saying he felt his life was over... She was left reeling. On March 27, 2014, Kevin told his mom he was wary of life and hated other people. He had enough and wanted her permission to die. His mom was understandably upset. She cared for people who had no choice but dying. And Kevin was just a teenager with his whole life ahead of him. So she tried to talk him out of it. A disgusting human being. At some point, the discussion made Kevin snap and he attacked his mom. Grabbing a cord from a games console, which was an Xbox controller, he hooked it around her throat and tried to choke her. Then, he used a hammer to beat her around the head around 20 times when she kept resisting. With his mom dead, he undressed her and sexually abused her dead body. The teenager then left a trail of blood in the home leading from the living room to the master bedroom, where Kimberly lay. He left a few written messages... One read, Chase me. Sorry for the mess, KD. Taking a bike and a backpack, he tried to leave town by cycling down some train tracks. Fairly quickly, he dumped the bike and bag in a bush and walked to a nearby town, where he knocked on the door of a couple. He calmly asked if he could use their phone call because he had committed a murder. 
They gave him the phone, and Kevin told the emergency dispatcher that his mother was dead in an apartment. Police rushed to the address and made the shocking discovery of Kimberly's posed body, naked from the waist down. Kevin was arrested and brought in for questioning. At the sta station, he confessed to everything and said that although he loved his mom, he didn't have any regrets. I wouldn't take back what I did, he said. When asked what Kimberly had done to deserve dying in such a brutal way, Kevin replied, absolutely nothing. I'm just a terrible, disgusting person. Kevin admitted to using the hammer to kill his mom. When police asked what happened next, he told them he had sexual intercourse with her body. I guess I lost my virginity to a corpse, he said, without emotion. After killing his mom, he claimed he'd waited for his sister to come home for a while because he thought about killing her too, but changed his mind. I had my fill of killing. It seemed a little much, Kevin confessed. When police asked him how he should be punished for killing his mom, he told them he deserved 100 years in prison because he did not know exactly what he'd be doing. I'm not mentally disturbed. I'm sane. I know what I did. Police were stunned when he admitted it was highly unlikely he'd kill again. They charged him with murder and held him on a $2 million bail. At first, Kevin pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder, but just before his trial on October 2014, he changed his plea to guilty and admitted killing the mom he referred to as the best. The court were playing Kevin's taped confessions and heard him describe how he killed his mom and thought about murdering his sister too. Kevin's astonishing words rang around the courtroom. I don't have standards, he said. I don't have morals. A body's a body. A piece of meat. As the sentencing jury heard about how Kevin then sexually abused his mother's body, he smiled at them. No defense witnesses were called. His lawyer requested a light sentence and pointed out potential mental health issues, but the prosecution insisted there was no medical evidence to back it up. Kevin himself had admitted he was sane. Life in prison. When the couple who Kevin had gone to after killing his mom had to point him out in court, he waved back at them. It took jurors just an hour to reach their verdict. Kevin, now 18, was given the maximum sentence, life in prison. Kevin's grandfather, Clyde Hill, spoke in court to the killer. You broke an unwritten law. You killed your mother. You just don't do that. We won't ever see you again. The fateful day, Kevin turned a desire to kill himself into a mission to commit an unthinkable murder. His devoted mom had been trying to convince him to choose life, but it seems Kevin was far too focused on death to listen. Now that's a better article when it comes to this case. Because there's a lot of fucked up, like that guy was a potential fucking serial killer type, like fucking creepo. And the fact that he raped his mother simply because she was a corpse... And she wasn't going to refuse him. It sells you a lot. And that he wanted to lose his virginity. That, I mean, that's a fucked up fucking psychological piece of shit. And they, rather than he says he's sane, he's fucking insane. And it's just this idea that Mexicans and Latin, uh, Hispanic Americans, specifically Mexicans, um, hate mental illness accusations. And they don't even understand how psychology works, let alone they think being insane is being uncontrollably insane, like you don't know what's going on around you, let alone uh, like you're not able to take care of yourself or function in regular society. By all standards and definition, this guy should have been put in a fucking mental asylum and studied for the rest of his life because he is a absolute maniac. 
to be put in general population, I mean, I understandable because what can you do if you confess to sanity? You can't prove someone is insane when they say they're sane. But, I mean, I think evidence suggests that an unmotivated, unless it was not truly unmotivated, and there is more to this case than is being disclosed, uh, specifically this, ch- this child probably being a product of sexual abuse or uh, MK Ultra or satanic possession, demonic possession with the mother working at the hospice. Um, the, the ideas there, you know, are, are left to be explored, but it's a fucked up world that we're living in, especially in this city. Now, for the headliner, the nationwide headliner that you may have seen on such mainstream programs as Dateline. Dateline. We're talking about the murder of Molly Algen, otherwise known as the lesbian couple shooting of Portland, Texas in 2012, where the accused and sentenced now now guilty by official guilty by Texas court systems, although there is controversy behind that. David Strickland apparently ambushed and, and killed these two people, these two uh, women who were uh, teenagers at the time. By shooting them execution style after sexually assaulting them on a public park, a bird walking park that's in a suburban residential neighborhood besides an apartment complex on one side and mansions on the other. This case got national attention at the time because of its implications of homophobia that led the media into both a circus as well as put a lot of pressure on the Portland police for producing um, a guilty verdict of the Corpus Christi police in the greater area. It became a national, like, uh, scandal, right? And it was known from 2014 onward, 2012 onward, probably as the most famous murder case that happened in this area. It's the murder of Molly Ogden. Molly Ogden was a 19-year-old woman murdered on June 22, 2012 in Violet Andrews Park in Portland, Texas, after she and her girlfriend were attacked and shot. The case garnered national attention and sparked outrage amongst the public, as homophobia initially was suspected to be a motivating factor in the crime. David Malcolm Strickland was convicted of the crime in 2014. On June 23, 2012, bird watchers at Violet Andrews Park called a the police after discovering two women's bodies lying below a viewing deck. First responders discovered Molly Algen and her girlfriend, Mary Christine Chapa. The women had been sexually assaulted and shot in the head around midnight the previous evening. Algen was pronounced dead at the scene, whilst Chapa was taken to hospital in critical condition. Following intensive care and concerns that the bullet may have left her completely paralyzed, Chapa regained mobility in the left side of her body and helped police create a sketch of the offender. Due to the attack's brutal nature, it received media or heavy media coverage and resulted in public outrage. 
Vigils were held across the country by the LGBT community, and some suspected the case could be a hate crime. Arrest and trial. Police were led to believe that David Strickland in 2014 was the killer after Chapa's father received an anonymous letter containing information about the crime not released to the public. The letter accused a latent Utah man of the murder of Ogden. Police found that the man had an alibi. The latent man's home had been burglarized that year by David Strickland, a former friend. When questioned about the letter, the latent man noted a photo of him included in the letter had been taken by Strickland's wife, Laura. Leighton police investigations are investigating the burglary had discovered evidence in Strickland's car, including two guns, ammunition, a suppressor, gloves, and a backpack containing condoms, flex handcuffs, bolt cutters, a knife, and other items. These items were turned over to investigators in the Olgan case. Police used GPS to discover that Strickland's cell phone had been near the Chapa home when the letter had been hand-delivered. Other evidence included in the arrest warrant included the fact that a gun in Strickland's possession was matched to bullet casings at the crime scene. Strickland had also inserted himself in the original investigation, talking to investigators and being seen at the crime scene just days after the shooting. A draft of the letter to the Chapa family was found on Strickland's computer. David Strickland and his wife Laura Strickland were arrested on June 20, 2014 and held at San Patricio County Jail. David Strickland was charged with capital murder, aggravated sexual assault, and aggravated assault. Strickland was not charged with a hate crime because authorities found no evidence to indicate the women were targeted due to their sexuality, but were likely random targets. Laura Strickland was charged with tampering with evidence. The charge was dismissed. Shortly before trial, George Kumbis, a local gun store owner and the husband of a defense witness, was murdered in his own store and an apparent robbery gone wrong. Corpus Christi police concluded that the robbery was targeted and a potential murder. On September 28, 2016, a San Patricio County jury found David Strickland guilty of capital murder and aggravated sexual assault. The prosecution did not seek the death penalty, and Strickland was sentenced to life imprisonment. In 2018, advances in testing technology allowed for DNA identification of a hair found on Chapa's body. The hair was matched to an initial suspect in the crime named Dylan Spellman, who had recently pled guilty to his involvement in an armed robbery in Nevada in which he and his cohorts referred to each other by numbers mirroring the way Molly and Christine were referred to as number one and number two during their assault. Previously, DNA found on a cigarette butt and energy drink can at the scene both matched the sp- uh, to Spellman. Spellman had been staying with his father's best friend just down the street from the scene of the crime. Eyewitnesses also placed Spellman at Violet Andrews Park both before and after the crime. Attorneys for Strickland filed a motion for his conviction to be overturned based on the newfound DNA evidence, which District Attorney Sam Smith dismissed on an updated episode of Dateline. The appeal was denied in January of 2020. Aftermath 
In 2017, Christian Chapa filed a lawsuit against David Strickland, his father Larry Joe Strickland, and Taft Pharmacy, the family business, seeking $500 million in damages. The complaints against Strickland's father and Taft Pharmacy were later dropped from the lawsuit. This article about it is from My SA, one of the uh, premier Texas news sites. If I do have to say so myself. My SA seems to be, and San Antonio itself seems to be really, really into news and like generating this, this content. But yeah, that, that's, I digress. My SA. Hitman letter read in trial of Helotes man accused of raping and shooting South Texas lesbian couple. A crime scene investigator takes pictures of an evidence marker. So that's the photo caption. A San Patricio County jury heard a letter Wednesday that officials believe the man suspected in a 2012 shooting wrote detailing plans to kill a teenage girl. David Strickland, a former University of Texas San Antonio student, is facing life in prison if he is convicted of shooting and raping Molly Judith Algen and Mary Christine Chapa on June 22, 2012 at Violet Andrews Park in Portland, Texas, a small town just east of the Corpus Christi Bay. Algen, a former Texas A&M University student, died on scene from a gunshot wound to the head, and Chapa survived but lost functionality to the left side of her body and had to relearn to walk and talk. The Corpus Christi Caller Times reported. Strickland was arrested at his Elote's home in 2014 and was charged with capital murder, aggravated assault, and aggravated uh, sexual assault, of which he said he was absolutely not guilty on Monday. The letter in question was meant for Chapa's father, and authorities found a draft of the note on Strickland's laptop, which included two identical sentences to the letter, the Caller Times have reported. The letter's author alleges a Utah man Strickland previously lived with offered a hitman $15,000 to kill Chapa, who later refused the deal. The Utah man said Algen got his order wrong at the Taco Bell where she worked in Portland the night of the shooting. In the letter, the author wrote that the Utah man said to them, I need her to disappear. I heard you wouldn't care if you got paid. But the author of the letter told the Utah man they didn't think a wrong order was a good enough reason to kill Oglin or Chapa, and that they preferred to kill child molesters or violent offenders. The author wrote that the Utah man considered Oglin and Chapa less than people due to their sexuality. The Utah man later personally attacked them at the park, according to the letter. Officials ruled out the shooting as a hate crime due to lack of evidence. The author wrote that the Utah man described how he left the girls' bodies in the park. 
He stacked Choppa on top of Olgin, where bird watchers later found them. The letter served as a warning to Choppa's father, telling him his daughter was not safe. I expect to die for this, but perhaps it is time, the author wrote, according to Collar Times. In the letter, author included a photo and address for the Utah man. Officials interviewed the man who was an army reservist. They determined he was not in Texas at the time of the shooting due to military orders he had, the newspaper reported. Former Orem Utah Policy Chief or Police Chief Gary Giles testified Wednesday saying he took Sergeant Roland Chavez off the case after he failed to keep his recorder on when interviewing a suspect in an interrogation room. Former Portland detective Aaron Voloman was fired after he told the author helping Chapa write a book, Chivas Sandage, information about the case. Vuleman told Sandage in an email he knew he was doing the right thing by helping. Officials also believe Laura Strickland, the suspect's wife, learned confidential information from Vuleman's wife. The two worked at a Chili's together. Laura Strickland was arrested in 2014 for tampering with evidence, a charge that was later dismissed. Continuing with these articles, this is from Distractify. Dateline revisits the 2012 shooting of Kristen Chapa and the murder of Molly Algen. In 2012, Mary Christine Chris Chapa and her girlfriend Molly Algen were shot execution style at a Texas park. Christine miraculously made it out alive. Where is she now? NBC's Dateline is revisiting a case covered in 2017, a Texas twist for its 2017-2012 episode, or 2021 episode, The Overlook, taking another look at 2012 murder of Molly Algen, who was shot execution style, along with her girlfriend, Mary Christine Chris Chapa, who miraculously survived. What exactly happened on that day in Portland, Texas, Violet Andrews Park? And where is Christine Chapa now? On the night of June 22, 2012, lesbian couple Molly Ogden, 19, and Christine Chapa, then 18, were in Violet Andrews Park when both were sexually assaulted, then shot in the head. Hours later, bird watchers found the bodies of the teenagers. Ogden was pronounced dead at the scene, while Chapa miraculously survived. Chapa, who was in critical condition, was taken to the hospital, where she woke up unable to speak, open her eyes, or move the left side of her body. As she gained strength, according to writer Chavez Sandage, who co-wrote the forthcoming The Wind Blew Through Us, Love, Murder, and Justice in Texas, along with Chapa herself, she gained the ability to communicate and help police create a composite sketch of her and Algin's attacker. 
In 2014, police were led to David Strickland, who had committed a burglary that year and had been discovered with evidence in his car, including two guns, ammunition, a suppressor, gloves, and a backpack containing condoms, flex cuffs, bolt cutters, a knife, and other items, per Texas Monthly. Strickland was charged with capital murder, aggravated a sexual assault, and aggravated assault, and was sentenced in 2016 to life in prison without parole. While the case initially appeared to be many to be a hate crime given the fact that teenagers were a lesbian couple, authorities ultimately found no evidence to indicate that the women were targeted due to their sexuality. In 2018, a hair found on Algen's body was DNA tested, leading to suspicions that the wrong man had been behind bars. The hair was matched to Dylan Spellman, an initial suspect in the crime. Strickland filed for his conviction to be overturned based on the new evidence, but the appeal was denied in January 2020, according to Kala Times. However, a 2021 article by the same outlet claims that Strickland's lawyers have asked for another hearing and filed for an order requesting access to physical evidence, records, and results of DNA testing, hair, and trace evidence, jail phone calls, and recorded interviews of the initial suspect. Where is Christine Chapa now? These days, Christine Chapa wants to inspire, according to her Twitter bio. A South Texas resident and self-identified survivor, student, writer, lesbian badass also says she's engaged as fuck on her Instagram page, which is private. A November 2020 update on the GoFundMe where she has been raising funds for her recovery seems to paint the most complete picture of what the survivor who often uses the hashtag, hashtag I take bullets has been up to since the heinous crime. Although Chapa continues rehabilitation and has been able to learn to get through life without using her left arm or hand. She writes she is doing a lot better. The Texas A&M nursing student still continues to have problems with muscle tone on the left side of her body, with severe headaches and migraines, PTSD, anxiety, and panic attacks. However, she also shared some good news. I've been invited to join the Society for Collegiate Leadership and Achievement, a national honor society, she wrote. I feel lucky to have a second life and want to inspire others. I want to share my story with the hope of contributing to a world where compassion is stronger than violence and hate. To denote, to, to donate to Chapa's GoFundMe, and he gives the links here. So that's what the survivor has been getting up to. This next article from the same source, Distractify. Are Molly Algen's parents still fighting for justice? For their daughter, they've been quiet lately. Molly Algen, 19, was sexually assaulted and murdered in 2012. Here's everything we know about her family and where her convicted killer is today. The Dateline episode, The Overlook, revisits the 2012 shooting and assault case in Portland, Texas. Molly Algen, 19, and then her 18-year-old girlfriend, Christine Chapa, were both sexually assaulted and shot in the head with a large caliber gun. The women were both left for dead. However, Chopper miraculously pulled through and is still alive today. Many speculate that anti-gay sentiments have been a driving factor for the crime, but have never actually been confirmed. Filmed on the Dateline episode, A Texas Twist in 2017, still incarcerated David Strickland was convicted for the crime, but new evidence has since risen concerns that he might actually not be guilty, which explored in the Dateline uh, sequel, The Overlook, in this 2021. 
Chapa, who suffered a major brain injury and lost control of her left arm and hand following the shooting, has remained determined to put the correct killer behind bars. However, Olgin's parents have stayed pretty quiet since the incident and have not spoken out regarding the ongoing case, but they are still actively seeking justice for their daughter. Kept reading for everything we know about Mala Olgin's parents. Mario Olgin's parents are Mario Olgin and Meryl Olgin. There is very little information about them available. However, Mario Algin does have a photo of Molly Algin and her siblings on his Facebook page. He lives in Ingleside. Following the shooting, Mario Algin said he knew something was up right away when his daughter, when she did not show up for work the next day. It was not like Molly. If she had someplace to be, she was going to be there. I immediately had bad feelings about it, he told reporters in 2012. He explained that she had just finished her first semester in college and was studying to be a psychiatrist. She was happy, he recalled. Now she's my guardian angel. I know she's looking down on us in a better place. Overall, he was confident the police would find the killer. Justice will be served, he declared. However, he hasn't spoken with the press in almost a decade about his daughter's killings. Marilyn Olgin has also never given a public statement about the tragedy. It makes us wonder, are Mario and Marilyn Olgin fighting for justice for their daughter, or have they given up? And that article is very interesting because it seems to me that the author is suggesting, heavily suggesting, that the parents suspiciously are inactive on social media are in the public eye calling reporters, police departments, etc., reaching out to groups to really get to the truth of who their daughter's killer was and rather have accepted the fact that someone is guilty and has been put to jail for life or put in prison for life for their murder, accepting that the city and courts did their, did their job, the case is closed, they have to move on with their life. The last public statement was given in 2012. Now, this is strange because if the parents are not, even the, the mother has never given a public interview, never given a public statement about it, right? The father has only given a few public statements in 2012. The killer was caught in 2014, supposedly, I mean, imprisoned in 2014, and sentenced in 2016. No comments made, no reporters asking him any questions, no reporters doing interviews with him, asking him about how he felt about the case, nothing like that during this time of real cases. There is a very suspicious lack or difficulty in finding a certain photograph or video that I remember clearly when it came out in 2014. I was already in the program to kill subject matter. I was already in the criminal true crime conspiracies back in 2014. And I was suspicious of all things said in the media when it came to high-profile murder cases by this point, knowing that they were false flag psyops to control the population, uh, produce uh, the press, the, the, produce the, the public theater of catching a real killer, but never actually catching the guilty parties because the guilty parties are organized in societies, covens, cults, and have motivations within the police force themselves that can be used to hide the case, their guilt, uh, you know, cover it up, etc. Right? These people are generally very influential, powerful people. And remember, David Strickland, his father 
owns a pharmacy, a local pharmacy in Taft, which is Taft, Texas. And they were sued for $500 million, meaning, I know that's an absurd number, but they are millionaires. They are uh, the kind of people who go between Corpus Christi, Texas, Gulf Coast, Texas, and Utah and Nevada so regularly that a Utah man from Layton, Utah, was in Portland, Corpus, uh, Portland, Texas, outside of Corpus Christi, eating at a Chili's with these people. Supposedly, where the motivation to get this murder uh, started occurred. Then there was a man from Nevada who was staying only a, a block away, whose DNA has been found on the corpses of uh, these two women. These murder victims. And he was seen in Violet Park, but he is from Nevada. And he was caught in Nevada doing an armed robbery. There's a lot of suspicious shit going on here. But the, the image I'm talking about, the video I'm talking about, had a controversial segment in it. Where David Strickland is being loaded into a cop car after the first trials hearings, right? And he puts up to the windshield a, a handwritten note that clearly says, do not believe the media. Or do not believe the lies. Do not believe the news. And it was something like that. I am a little bit hazy on the details because I can't find it to confirm it. And it was in 2014. It was nine years ago. But it was on live news watching this happen. That David Strick, because I was watching it with my girlfriend at the time, Kayla, and uh, we were watching the news, and I was saying how suspicious this all was, that after two years of no evidence in this case, they immediately found the case because the guy himself had written the note that he thought would be anonymous, but that they traced back to him, and if he had never given this note to the father, they would never have caught him at all. That's the thing, like, this this whole case is based on one, one mistake this guy made, and which he gave the letter thinking it was going to be anonymous and point uh, apparently point blame to a Utah man his is uh, a man he had fallen out with basically and robbed his own robbed his house uh, actually and and were trying to destroy the reputation of maybe a former business partner partner in crime or something uh, but a man in Utah late in Utah um if he hadn't done that, if he hadn't contacted the victim's parents, if he hadn't done any of this shit after those two years, never either one of them would ever have been associated with this crime. At all. At all. And then the guy got caught and apparently had the same murder kit, including condoms, flex cuffs, etc., pre pre-created and assembled from two years ago in his own vehicle that he was caught in after robbing somebody in uh, Layton, Utah. And he's from Portland, Texas, which is, you know, thousands of miles away. Which does which I understand. I understand you get on a Greyhound bus, you take a, you take the fucking road, highway, get all the way up there, Las Vegas, etc., Utah, whatever. But the fact that there were multiple people from that Nevada, Utah area, all in Portland, Texas, living at that time, on that coastline, right next to Violet Park. Like I said, it's in a wealthy neighborhood. 
are are in the 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 area. It's a very obscure area between refineries, etc. In a very small suburb of only twenty thousand people. What are the odds? What are the fucking odds, right? But that note, that note. Don't believe the media. Don't believe the lies. Don't believe the news. Whatever it was, is don't believe, right? That he was an innocent man getting railroaded. And now evidence is coming out, promoted by Dateline, etc., suggesting the very same conclusion as read in this article. Is DNA telling us the wrong man is in prison for the murder of Molly Algen? Who killed Molly Algen? One man sits in prison for the crimes, but perhaps he shouldn't be there. Where is Dylan Spillman right now? Here is what we know. And this is an article that was written in December 18th, 2021. In the summer of 2012, two girls were hanging out in Violet Andrews Park in Portland, Texas. Molly Algen and Mary Christine Chapa, Christine to the most people, were more than just friends. And they were doing what all teenagers in love do, trying to find a bit of space to call their own. Sadly, that was the last time anyone would see Molly alive. Two bird watchers discovered their bodies in June 23rd, 2012. Both women had been sexually assaulted and shot in the head that night before. As shocking as that was, no one could have predicted that Christine was still alive. Evidence eventually led police to a man named David Strickland who was convicted of capital murder and aggravated assault. And oh, it was aggravated sexual assault in September 2016. But in 2018, a new DNA evidence pointed the finger to someone else. One Dylan Spellman. Where is Dylan Spellman now? Because science is constantly advancing. New DNA technology that wasn't available at the time of the trial in 2016 was able to identify a hair found on Molly's body. The hair matched Dylan Spellman's, who for a time was a suspect before David Strickland was even arrested and convicted. At the time of the attack in 2014, police recovered cigarette butts and a monster energy drink with DNA that matched Dylan Spellman's. Dylan's ex-girlfriend, Ashley or Alicia Dickey, also told the police that she and Dylan had been in Violet Andrews Park the night of the murder. The Portland police soon discovered that Dylan was living in Texas while waiting to be sentenced for an armed robbery charge out of Nevada. What they quickly realized was the Nevada case was similar to the Texas case in a very specific way. According to the Nevada case file, the suspects refer to each other by numbers. Christine told the Portland police that their attackers refer to Molly and Christine as Girl 1 and Girl 2. Since Christina survived, she was able to answer police questions, although she did suffer from a traumatic brain injury, which could explain why she said her attacker was only a few inches taller than her. Dylan Spellman is six foot eight inches, but his DNA was all over the crime scene. Eventually, Dylan went to prison, uh, went to prison for the armed robbery in Nevada and was released in 2015. No one has heard from him since. That could be the quietness of someone who just wants to get on with their life, or the need to hide from something else. Regardless, David Strickland still sits in prison. Why was David arrested and charged, despite the overwhelming DNA evidence pointing to Dylan initially? 
David Strickland is still in prison. Why? In 2014, Kristen's father received an anonymous letter that pointed police in the direction of David Strickland. When they searched his home, they found part of that letter. A further search revealed a knife, flex handcuffs, bolt cutters, a suppressor, two guns, ammunition, and a backpack containing condoms. Police were also able to use GPS to place David's phone near Christine's house the day the anonymous letter was delivered. Perhaps the biggest piece of damning evidence was the fact that bullet casings from the scene of the crime matched one of David's guns. To be perfectly honest, compared to a massive amount of DNA belonging to Dylan found at the crime scene, this all seems circumstantial, but that was enough to convict him for life. Upon hearing about the new DNA evidence that point to Dylan Spellman again, David's attorneys filed a motion for his conviction to be overturned. The appeal was denied in January 2020. David continues to sit in jail while Dylan walks free, but most importantly, two women's lives were forever altered that night. And they deserve the truth. I'm going to end it now. This is a lot to read, and I insist you guys go do your own research now with that, because this is a fucking crazy case from start to finish with a lot of, uh, a lot of downtime, a lot of cold case level downtime between events. It's almost like two years between specific events, two years from the murder to the quote-unquote letter, the anonymous letter that was delivered, the Hitman letter. Um, that brought the police's attention to David Strickland. And then the forensic evidence investigations there that led them to, to declare him the guilty, uh, the, the, the prime suspect. With Dylan Spillman, evidence initially being suspected, but then because of the actual survivor's own testimony, despite being shot in the head with a large caliber bullet, uh, surviving and uh, them treating that like it was accurate information and then uh, ruling him out as a suspect because he was six foot eight. Then both this Nevada man and the Utah man not knowing each other are being connected, but both being involved in armed robberies and suspected in these crimes that happened in Portland, Texas. Crazy shit. I mean, I'm just saying it's crazy shit. It really is. And the fathers and the mothers of the dead uh, girl, the teenager, the murdered victim, uh, not giving any public uh, disclosure, but then the survivor going on to lead a minor celebrity lifestyle of being, uh, reaching out, being a lesbian activist, uh, minor celebrity cause, the celebrity, um, as well as, as being coming as part of this honor society, social advancement, etc., being really well-received in public, and also being engaged and in, in moving on. And granted, it was 10 years ago, but still. you know. And she is not. And she is not questioning and wanting the real killer to be caught if the real killer, if the wrong man is in jail. She's not advocating uh, investigations into this, having accepted the, uh, the guilty verdict provided by the police, whether they railroaded this individual or not. Okay, but I'll get into this article. This is a change.org petition for justice for David Strickland. 
Why this petition matters. Started by Linda Strickland. In June of 2012, Molly Algen and Christine Chapa were on a date in Portland, Texas when they were approached by a gunman in Violet Andrews Park. The attacker, wearing gloves and a mask, forced Christi uh, Christine to duct tape Molly and herself. He referred to the girls by numbers as he sexually assaulted them and then shot each of them in the back of the head. Molly, who was shot first, did not survive. David Strickland was charged with a fatal attack on Molly Algen and Christine Chapa after a former friend of his, a detective, was appointed as the lead on the case. Based primarily on shell casings found underneath Molly's body and an inconclusive ballistics report, Strickland was convicted and sentenced to life in prison in September of 2016 by San Patricio County. Aside from a questionably handled shell casings, no physical evidence or eyewitnesses placed David Strickland at the scene of the crime. However, overwhelming evidence indicates that the original suspect, Dylan Wade Spellman, is the real perpetrator. Spellman had just been convicted of an armed robbery in Nevada, during which he and his cohorts entered a home and tied and bound the residents, including a child, as they referred to each other by numbers. Spellman was staying with a family friend in Portland while he awaiting sensing and spent a lot of time in the Violet Andrews Park. Before Strickland's arrest, Spellman's DNA had been found on a cigarette butt and an energy drink can at the scene. When law enforcement visited Spellman in a Nevada prison to confront him about the DNA, Spellman failed a polygraph test and also asked the prosecutor, Sam Smith, how much time am I looking at? After being told that capital murder carried a death penalty sentence, Spellman declined to speak further and was not charged. Additionally, three eyewitnesses that could positively identify Spellman placed him at the scene before and after the murder. Spellman was also found by police having sex with a woman in the same park, beneath an overlook, one month after the murder. According to Christine, the attacker used a silver pistol. Upon searching the home of Spellman's girlfriend, Portland police found a silver pistol. While Strickland's Glock pistol, the alleged murder weapon, is black. Furthermore, Strickland did not own any silver pistols at all. Two years after Strickland's conviction, a pubic hair that had been found on Chapa's clothing was also matched to Dylan Spellman. San Patricio County District Attorney Sam Smith has dismissed the DNA match on the pubic hair as irrelevant. Read that again. San Patricio County District Attorney Sam Smith has dismissed the DNA match on the pubic hair as irrelevant. To date, no arrest warrants have been issued for David or Dylan Spillman, while the shoddy case against David Strickland has been repeatedly broadcast on national television, including MSNBC, Vanity Fair, Investigation Discovery, and Dateline NBC. In early 2020, David Strickland's appeal was denied by the 13th Circuit Court of Appeals. David Strickland deserves exoneration or a new trial. Christine and Molly's family deserves the truth and justice. The public deserves integrity in the criminal justice system. Sign the petition today.
Is the law above the law? They seem to think so in the area this occurred. We all need to vote for our local officials. They are the ones in charge of our community's way of life. And that's a very chilling last update to make on this article because that's absolutely correct. Well, we vote for the sheriff's departments, but we don't uh, vote for the uh, district attorney or stuff like that of small communities. Judges uh, get voted for and everything, but they're all just, yeah, they're they're voted for, but they're fucking bullshit. I mean, they're just bullshit. These these are elections where the lead vote, the winning vote gets like eight votes, and they're all their family members and stuff, and no one even knows or cares. And if they're not addressed publicly in the communities as being important, then it's not a true democracy, which doesn't educate the voter, nor encourage them, or incentivize their participation in a system that will eventually dictate whether or not law and order or justice is carried out in criminal courts of law. And if this is the case, it doesn't matter that someone was caught, but the wrong person was caught, which is a crime on itself, and the right person has gone literally scot-free with the district attorney, Sam Smith, of San Patricio County, calling evidence against him irrelevant, as well as failing to properly interrogate or pursue this line of, of investigation at all. Either, either at all, just at all, like at all, or just massively incompetently where and when they did investigate the Dylan Spellman angle of the crime, who had repeat run-ins with the law at Violet Andrews Park, had been witnessed and placed at that park routinely since his both arrival and until his exit of the area, and uh, had a previous aggravated assault case, both against a minor and as an organized uh, you know, armed robbery with other people, Involved in Nevada that had the same exact MOs as the time he used his crime. He had he had a silver gun matching the description of the weapon used to both hold him hostage and perform the execution. And the only evidence that was tried in the David Strickland case was a approximate match between the caliber used to do the killings and the Glock that was found on David Strickland in Utah by a district attorney who once personally knew David Strickland from his time in the community. And it may shock some people to know that in a community of 20,000 people, there's still only six degrees of separation. Just like how the lead detective, the homicide detective, in San Patricio County in Portland, Texas, his wife personally worked with and knew the wife of David Strickland. And just like how one of the defense witnesses who was going to protect and defend David Strickland, her husband owned a local gun store that was robbed and he was murdered and what Corpus Christi police described as an intentional murder not a robbery gone wrong a targeted homicide 
That and the fact that national TV, specifically Dateline TV, but also the international true crime world, and with its various specificalities, uh, you know, specifics like the 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 various specifics of LGBTQ true crime, uh, teenage true crime, uh, couple killer true crime, unsolved true crime, uh, you know, exactly all that shit converging on this case and it happening literally in the, in the smallest and sleepiest little corner of Oso Bay that you could possibly imagine. Surrounded by mansions and working class neighborhoods. But in a town that surprisingly has some of the most brutal, gory, and horrific murders that happen in this area, in this entire stretch of Gulf Coast. In the entire South Texas and Gulf Coastal Plains areas. What the fuck is going on in Portland, Texas? What the fuck is going on alongside Oso Bay? What demonic black possession haunts this land and preys upon the innocence of the people around it? The black waters of Oso Bay connect Corpus Christi, Portland, Ingleside, Port Aransas, Aransas Pass, Flower Bluff, Mustang Island. All these communities. And each has a criminal history as dark as night itself. What is a paradise and a coastal heaven for many who are absolutely taken and fall in love upon first sight of such a beautiful coastal area. Unlike anything located in Texas. It can also be a living nightmare and an absolute hell for those unlucky enough to suffer the violence that it coexists in the shadows of the coastal parks, the communities, and inside the very hearts of the human beings that call it home. Be careful, watch out, watch your back, be aware of your situation. Know that this world is wonderful and beautiful and needs to be explored, but you also have to defend yourself from the unspeakable evil that exists from when darkness falls, the freaks come out and lay an ambush for the innocents. God bless you and your families. Namaste and salam. Iron sharpens iron. A friend sharpens a friend. Thank you, each and every one of you, for listening to this episode of the Beyond Top Secret Texan broadcast. I am the Beyond Top Secret Texan. I'm broadcasting you from the third coast, Gulf Coast, uh, Gulf Coast of Texas. Third coast, coast of the most, Gulf Coast of Texas. My pride and privilege to be doing so. I said, uh, just, just be careful out there. 
Statistically, you're safe. Statistically, this is just a beautiful low-crime area that's lower than half of the national average, less than half of the Texas average. But shit gets real here, just like it gets anywhere. And if you're not from here, use this as an example, as a motivation to look into your own local history with crime your own community's history with crime and see for yourself whether it's on the level whether it's corrupt willing to throw innocent men in prison for life for the theater of justice and whether or not it's violence is connected to something larger darker unspeakably evil. But that evil needs to be spoken of, needs to be spoken, yelled at, screamed at from the rooftops. Because it fears exposure, because it knows that attention is its only vulnerability. To kill evil, one must see evil learn evil, know evil, and then stop the evil. Thank you all. God bless you and your families. Peace out.